So Jesus, when he comes to this earth, his purpose in coming was clear. He came to, according to Luke 19.10, Jesus said he came to seek and save that which is lost. When we talk about the God of the Bible, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about a God who doesn't passively observe what he's created. We're talking about a God who took on human flesh to seek souls, to seek and save that which is lost. And, and, and that purpose is something that he passes on to us through his plans. Jesus, in his plans, commits us to the same work. Jesus said in Mark 8.35, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, notice, for my sake and the Gospels, will save it. Jesus calls us to not just be those who kind of stay in our holy huddles, who kind of observe what goes on in our world, in our neighborhood, but to actually be those who go out to share this message, to to introduce people to this God, to Jesus. He calls us to this. And what we have here in this first part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is Paul talking about this heart for souls that he had, that he and Silas and Timothy had for those in Thessalonica. Their desire was not just to, to be there and kind of uh, do a little bit of work and take off. They wanted to see God actually transform people's lives. They had a heart for these people. They wanted to see these people changed. And it's a heart that we see that is the heart of Jesus, and it's the heart that we see that God wants to develop in us. A heart that doesn't just think about, this is the neighborhood that I live in, but this is the mission field that God has given me. That we would have that kind of heart for souls. Now, this, this is a really important thing because I think one of the mistakes that we can make as, as Christians is to think that, okay, yes, the, the world needs to hear about Jesus. We believe that. We believe he said he wants that. So let's just send Johnny and Lois to do it. Let's just send other people out there. We'll make sure other people do it. Model for us, demonstrate for us, there it is, how they demonstrate for us this heart for souls. So let's look at that. We're going to look at three main things. First thing is this. They demonstrated because their motivation was they desired to please God. Look at verse 1 again. Paul says, You know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, it was a fruitful time. You guys responded to the message we had. And he says in verse 2, Because even after we suffered before in Philippi, he says, We were still bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God, in much conflict. Now, when Paul talks about this suffering in Philippi, he's talking about what we can read about in Acts chapter 16. Remember, this whole process of, of the gospel going to the, the Thessalonians, we read in John, or I'm sorry, in Acts 17. But before that, Paul was in Philippi, Acts 16, and there, there was some serious persecution going on. They went through some really rough times. Uh, 
they actually were thrown into jail, which they shouldn't have been as Roman citizens, but they were thrown into jail for the work that we did. And Paul said, okay, we suffered in a big way. We were in jail. It was a big deal. Uh, they were threatening us in some serious ways. And he would think that that kind of suffering may put them off. Paul might have been tempted to say, okay, we went through some difficult times, and so this time in, in Thessalonica, we're going to be a little more cautious. And Paul says, no, not going to be cautious. We're going to be bold. We're going to be bold. Then we have to understand what boldness means here. The idea of boldness, when the scripture talks about boldness, boldness is not some sort of pushy, uh, fanatic who wants to make sure that they cram the gospel down everyone's throats. I remember being in the city center once in Norwich and um, this guy was passing out gospel leaflets and he, he, he handed one to me. I'm like, oh, thanks, Ben. I'm not going to take this because I'm already a Christian, but keep up the good work. Well done. He says, but are you born again? I said, I'm absolutely born again. So thankful that Jesus has done that. Yes, but do you know Jesus? Yes. Are you listening to me? I know Jesus. We're brothers. It's okay. And he's just crammed. He just, he just would not believe anything I said. And I just thought, that's really not that effective. I don't think this is going to work. That's not boldness. That's brashness. That's maybe even fanaticism. I'm not judging that guy. I'm not saying he's not my brother. I'm just saying that's not what Paul's talking about here. The boldness Paul's talking about here is, a, is really more like a, a determined courage and confidence in the reality of the gospel. The reality of who Jesus is and what he accomplished through his life and his death and his resurrection. It's a confidence in God. And Paul says, even though we suffered great things, when we came to you, we were still confident in God. We still knew God was wanting to do something. In fact, maybe even more so. It is amazing how when we suffer, when we, when we are sort of marginalized for our faith in Jesus, how that often can bring some clarity. It can often help us to realize, you know, this is, this is the biggest issue, isn't it? This is the biggest deal, isn't it? What I do with Jesus is the issue. And sometimes when we're kind of forced to choose, do you want people to be happy or do we want Jesus to be happy? We have to kind of answer the question, well, who do I really say Jesus is? And so Paul says, when we had that experience, we, we were motivated. We, we had this enduring confidence in God's good work. God was doing something in Philippi in spite of the suffering. And in a sense, what Paul's wanting to say is, and God's doing something there in, in Thessalonica in spite of the suffering. Now he also says in verse 3, notice, he writes, for our exhortation, that's talking about the message that he gave, our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Now these, these three words that he used here, error, uncleanness, um, deceit, these are all words that talk about sort of the wrong way of doing something. So when he talks about error, he's talking about we didn't come to you with the wrong content. We brought to you truth. We brought to you the reality of who Jesus was, not just something that we've made up. When he talks about uncleanness, he's talking about a wrong uh, motivation. He says, we didn't come with you to, with a wrong motivation. We weren't trying to just get money off you, which we'll talk about more in a minute. And when he talks about the seat, he's saying, we didn't come with you with a wrong method. We weren't doing kind of a bait and switch. You know, we weren't saying, hey, come to Jesus and everything will be wonderful. And then you come to Jesus and like, oh, by the way, you're going to suffer greatly. There was none of that. It was an honest presentation of what it means to follow Jesus. And so, in other words, what Paul's saying is, hey, listen, we, when we came to you in this confidence in God, we shared with you the right message with the right uh, motive and the right methods. We did this the right way. 
Now, this is not Paul bragging. This is Paul being straight with these guys. He wants them to follow his example. He wants to make sure in, in their motivation to go out with the gospel, and we saw last week, didn't we, these guys were already going out with the gospel, that they were continuing with the right message and the right motive and the right methods. They want to make sure that they were doing that. Now, he goes on in verse 4 to say this. Listen. He says, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, he says, so even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. And this is the main thing that we need to see, the first main point. These guys desired to please God. Their heart was that God would be pleased with their lives. God would be pleased with the way they did ministry. This is a non-essential if we're going to be effective in reaching souls. This is a non-essential if we're going to have the right heart in reaching souls. Now, now, let me be clear about something. Paul talks about in Philippians 1 about people, he writes about people who are sharing Jesus with the wrong motivations. And people are going, Paul, it's horrible. These guys are they're just sharing Jesus because they want you to get in trouble and stay in jail. You know what Paul says? Oh, well, they're sharing Jesus. <laughs> as long as they're sharing Jesus, that's okay. So I'm not saying that if you're going, oh, no, I don't know if my motives are always perfect. Maybe I should stop talking about Jesus. No, I'm not saying that. Nor am I saying, am I judging other believers who share Jesus and maybe in a way that I don't think is the best method. What I'm talking about here, though, is, is a reality that, that what we need to have, what, what Paul and Timothy and Silas modeled for us, was a motivation that is, God, are you pleased with how I'm doing ministry? Are you pleased with how I relate to my neighbors? Are you pleased with my Christian witness at work? Are you pleased with it? Now, sometimes people can take this attitude of, of God being pleased, and they can, they can use it as an excuse to be brash or to be insensitive. But then we have to ask the question, okay, is God pleased when we're brash or insensitive? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, I think God calls us to, to want to represent Jesus and wanting to please him in a way that actually represents him, that people can actually see. Paul talks about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when he talks about he and Apollos' ministry to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, Let a man so consider us, that's him and Apollos, as servants of Christ, notice, and stewards of the mystery of God. A steward is someone who doesn't own something, but is responsible for it. That's what a steward is. And so when he says we're stewards of the mysteries of God, mysteries of God there, it's not talking about things we don't know, but things we didn't know until God revealed them, okay? And so Paul's saying, here's what our responsibility is. Not to come up with what the truth is, but simply present it to you as God's shown us. To just say, here it is, you, you can deal with it what you want. Now what's, what's good about this is that Paul goes on to say, listen, he says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, he says, I don't even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he says, he who judges me is the Lord. Now, this is a really important principle, because if our motivation is wanting to please God, if our motivation to share Jesus with people is wanting to please God, that frees us up from this this frustration that we can often feel because nobody seems to be responding to us. I mean, I have to say, 
the, the people that I've probably spent, there's, there's a lot of people that I've spent a lot of time with. I was spending some time today with uh, uh, one of the guys that works right next to the church office, and really, just a really great guy. I really enjoy having conversation with him. We were just, we really didn't get into spiritual things, um, but I was. He's a really clever guy, so you probably could tell I was doing this. I was trying to kind of weave Jesus into the conversation here or there. And the thing was, he wasn't, he wasn't biting. He's super respectful. He's a great guy. But he wasn't biting yet. But I'm praying for this guy. And I'm wanting to be intentional with this guy. Not because I want this guy to like me, but because I want this guy to know the love of Jesus. I want this guy to love Jesus. And so I'm investing in him and saying, God, show me how to love this guy. Show me how to reach this guy. Show me how to be friends with this guy. And, and, and how I am friends with him is going to be different than how maybe Sarah and I are friends with a couple that lives two doors down from us or three doors down from us. It's a different kind of person, different kind of relationship. But the issue is, we're not trying to say, oh Lord, help us to help that guy to think we're great. Help us to do what makes that person happy. Help us to do what makes that person think, what a wonderful guy that, 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 that John is. Now we're thinking, Lord, Show us how you're pleased. We want to be pleasing to you and how we relate to this person for the sake of the gospel. That is so important. See, if you're, if you're concerned about what people think about you, here's two things are going to happen. One is you're, you're going to, you're going to uh, probably uh, be insensitive. You're probably not going to maybe reach that person as you should. Or two, you're probably going to be too cowardly and be afraid to actually bring the conversation to Jesus. Because the truth is, we all want people to like us, don't we? And the, and the reality is, people don't always, in fact, people often, don't like who Jesus is. Or they don't like us trying to present Jesus to them. To have a heart for souls, you have to say, Lord, I want to do what pleases you, even if no one else likes it. See, Paul and Silas and Timothy had that heart. They desired to please God. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 5, he says, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. We'll talk about what that cloak of covetousness might mean, but let's, let's deal with this issue of flattery first. Because not only do we, these guys have a desire to please God, but they also were hardworking guys. They were working to benefit other people. They weren't like so many other people in their day who would sort of come into these different towns with their own messages or their own ideas, their own philosophies, and they try to gain an audience so they could take a collection and make a living. This is what most people did. Paul says, we didn't do that. But before he gets into that bit, he also says, listen, what we also didn't do is we also didn't use flattery. And we've got to understand what he means by flattery here, okay? Because it might, I don't want to get again, this, give this impression that that meant Paul was rude. Paul didn't go into Thessalonians and say, Thessalonica and say, you guys are losers, you need Jesus. You know, he wasn't like rude. It just means he wasn't flattering. Flattery means this. Flattery is basically an exaggerated or false praise that's meant to manipulate. Now, sometimes we do this with good intentions. I've heard Christians many times, I've even said this, say to somebody, man, you would make a great Christian. That's actually flattery in a manipulative way because the truth is, how do you know they're going to make a great Christian? In fact, sometimes the people that seem to be so sort of moral and self-assured and steady make horrible Christians. You know why? They struggle with legalism. 
They think it's all about me. I got this. I got this. They don't make very good Christians. They wrestle what it means to surrender their life to Christ. So, so, so saying that isn't actually helpful. And that's probably the best kind of flattery I can think of. But what's also not ha- what was, isn't helpful is when we are so passive about the things that people are involved in or the false gods that they worship that, we're, uh, that we kind of, well, we almost want to say, God, so that's a beautiful idol that you bow down to. It's lovely. I can see why you'd rub Buddha's belly. I, I get that, yeah. Why would we do that? That's a false flattery that doesn't help them. And Paul says, I didn't do that. Now, there's a difference between flattery and basic respect, showing respect for people. In fact, the Bible commands us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, it, it tells us to show proper respect to everyone. That's whether they're a believer or not, but have specific love for the family of believers. Show proper respect for everyone. I think the New King James says, honor all people. The idea here with honor, as opposed to flattery, Respect is an expression of the person's value, and it's not meant to manipulate them, it's meant to liberate them. We should look at every human being, regardless of their color or creed or gender, and we should see them as people, as image bearers of God, who have inherent value and therefore should be respected. Every single one. We should look at individuals and say, that's a person for whom Christ died. Therefore, they have value, and we should show them respect. That's not the same as flattery. Do you see the difference? This is really important. If we're going to be effective, if we're going to have a heart for souls, we have to see the difference. Because I see so many Christians making this mistake of thinking, you have value because you have skills. I mean, to be honest, sometimes this is what churches do. They recruit people who have skills because they want to use those skills to make their church look good. I've seen this happen many times. Oh, you're really, wow, you're an amazing drummer. Come play, come play drums for us. We'll overlook the fact that you don't live anywhere near like a Christian. You have skills. We want to use that. Or, you're, man, you're really good with kids. Hey, come volunteer for our Sunday school. We're overlooking the fact that you don't believe in the Jesus we're asking, we're trying to share with the kids, but you're really good with kids. I mean, I see this happen over and over and over again. And what is that? It's, it's, basically, it's a flattery. It's not helpful. Does that mean that we therefore don't acknowledge that someone's really good with kids? No, if someone, it doesn't matter if they're a Christian or not. If they're good with kids, we say, acknowledge, man, that's good. You're good with kids. Or you're a good musician. We can respect them, but we don't want to flatter them. Do you see the difference? Paul was not trying to flatter people to manipulate them, but he did show due respect to liberate them with the gospel. Now in verse 6 he says this. He says, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but the, the idea here is as an apostle they could have received money for ministry, and they didn't do that. They they. they decided, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to not demand what is rightfully ours. We're not going to do that. And they didn't do that for a very specific reason. Look at verse 9. Drop down to verse 9. He says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. In other words, their motive was to remove any burdens that would distract from the gospel. 
So this is why they didn't do what all the other kind of preachers of different philosophies and worldviews did in their day. They didn't just come into a town, try to grab a crowd, stir them up, and then take an offering. They didn't do that because they didn't want that to be a distraction. They didn't want that to be an excuse to say, ah, he's just like everybody else. Again, this is something that Paul did as well. Paul, Paul in fact, when he was, went to Corinth and he was preaching the gospel there with his team, the, the, the church in Corinth actually looked down on Paul and, and Apollos because, or, because they didn't receive, Paul and his team, because they didn't receive money. They're like, oh, these guys can't be true because they didn't receive money. They can't really be apostles. Listen to this. Paul writes this in, to the Corinthians. He says, don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? This is kind of how they would be funded. Uh, don't we have the right to bring a believing wife with others as the other apostles or the Lord's brothers do or as Peter does? Or is it only I and Barnabas, Paul says, who have to work to support ourselves? So Paul was doing what he and Barnabas were doing, what, what all the other apostles didn't do. The other apostles would come and they would minister and people would go, okay, you come stay with us. We'll make sure you're fed. We'll send you on your way with some money so you can get to the next town. They weren't ripping people off, but they were receiving that. Paul wouldn't even receive that because he wanted no burden. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12, he says, But we never use this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Now, full disclosure, I am paid full-time by the church. I just want to be clear about that in case anybody's wondering. I'm paid full-time by the church, Okay. We moved here from California, and when we moved here, we were paid full-time by eight supporting churches from the United States. They paid our way so that we could be here. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul, you can read all of 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says that's the way to do it. So why am I harping on this? Why am I really bringing this up that Paul did this? Because here's the point. We have, there are, there are over 80 people in this fellowship, over 80 people serving on some sort of ministry team. That's a huge percentage. It's a blessing to me. 80 people who serve with kids ministry or, or ushers or music or, or, or um, host a house group or do uh, multiple different things. Over 80 people who've actually taken the time to, to sign up, to uh, get whatever training they might need and to commit to those teams. And that's not counting those of you who serve who aren't officially on a team. Over 80 people. Guess how many of those people get compensated at all for what they do? Less than eight. And it'll probably always be that way. There will always be a reality in the local church where most of the work is being done by people who don't get any financial com uh, compensation for it. Do you know, do you understand something? This is a good thing. You see, it's funny because it, I've noticed that when, when I have a conversation with somebody, and they don't ask me what I do, but we, it comes into, to, uh, the conversation turns to something where I can bring in Jesus, and we're talking about Jesus. The conversation, there's a, there's a certain level of credibility that's there just by me bringing up Jesus and the way, maybe by the way I act. As soon as I say, they say, well, what do you do for a living? I say, well, I'm, a, I'm actually a pastor of a church. Oh, okay. You're paid to talk to me about this stuff. But not so much with you guys. When you just say, no, I'm just, I'm a retired person, or I'm a school teacher, or I'm a GP, or I'm a nurse, or I'm a fireman, whatever you are, and yet what you are above that is a Jesus follower. There's a credibility there that God wants to use. It's a credibility that was, 
that was modeled by Paul and Silas and Timothy. No, don't get me wrong. We are so blessed to see people go out in ministry. We're so excited about what Johnny and Lewis are going to do. We are looking to pay people on staff. We need a professional administrator. We need someone who can do that at a professional level. And we're going to pay them for that. So we need staff. But you know what we need? We need us as a congregation to have this mindset that says, you know what, it's not just kind of mucking in to do my bit. It's about recognizing that we're all on mission together. And there's something credible to my sacrifice for his sake. Something that the staff guys can't ever bring about. Paul's bringing this up. These guys were working for their people's benefits. They wanted to see other people blessed. Now, I want you guys to think about this. Because we are asking you as a congregation, I'm speaking to you guys who see Servants Church as your home church. This is your home, okay? We are asking you to pray very specifically about the mission that we're involved in. You see, a year from now, there's a really good chance, Lord willing, that Servants Church isn't going to have one location but three. We're going to be here still on Sunday mornings. Lord willing, we're going to be in, in Thorpe St. Andrew on Sunday afternoons, as well as, as down, in Gol- up and, down up over in Golston on Sundays at some time. We don't know yet what time. Three locations, three centers where we're going to do mission from and it can't just be a couple paid guys. It takes congregations of people who want to follow Jesus, want to make Jesus known, who have the same heart for souls that Jesus has and that these men had. We're we're not asking you, do you want to be on mission? We're, we're calling you as Jesus followers that you are on mission. We're asking you to seek him and say, God, where? Am I called to do mission here in West Norwich near the university? Am I called to do mission there in Thorpe St. Andrew? Am I called to do mission there in Golston? Where are we called to do mission? God, give us a heart for the souls you want us to reach out to. This is what God wants us to have. So these guys, they demonstrate their heart for souls through the desire to please God, that the fact that they were willing to work and sacrifice to benefit for others. But also, lastly, listen, they were committed to loving relationships. This is not just about communicating information. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not just about speaking good news. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also about demonstrating good news. Look what Paul says in verse 7. Paul writes, For we were among you, for we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Paul says, We didn't come with demands saying, Hey, we're apostles of God. You should be taking care of us. Paul says, We came like a nursing mother. Okay, we all know what it's like for, for nursing moms, whether we're moms or not. We all know what it's like with a nursing mom. The baby demands, the mom nurses. And we also know, you, you probably do know, mostly probably know this, that there's something special about that bond that comes between a nursing mother and her child. The distance between the baby's face 
and the mother's face when they're nursing is the, the, the right distance for the baby to focus on the mother's face. There's a bond that's happening there. The picture that Paul's painting here is a picture of, of them growing in a motherly kind of affection. A bond that grows through the sacrificing of yourself, the giving of yourself away. When a mom is nursing her child, when a woman is nursing a child, she's not gaining anything except the heart of love for that child, usually. But she's giving away her very body to that child. Paul's using this analogy on purpose. He's talking about the fact that part of growing in committed relationships or being committed to loving relationships, is knowing that that bond that we have with people grows as we give ourselves away. See, the, the, the small talk that we have at the break, that often is the case, that small talk is not the, the end that we're going for. It's a means to the end. The end is us knowing and being known so we can give ourselves away to each other. So we can show that kind of committed relationship. In fact, Paul says it plainly in verse 8. What does he say? So affectionately longing for you. That phrase, affectionately longing, it's used nowhere else in Scripture but right here. He says, so affectionately longing for you, he says, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Notice he says, because you had become dear to us. Become. Now they weren't there in Thessalonians for very long. But man, as they worked all day to make a living and preached all night to get the gospel out and spent time with these people, you know what happened? They grew in a fondness and an affection for these people. In other words, this bond that they had was a bond that grows with time and investment. See, this is where we get off asking you, this is where we feel justified in asking you to pray about where is God calling you to do mission? Where is God calling you to say, I'm going to invest in these people? I'm going to pour myself out for these people, for this neighborhood. Where? Because this is what God wants us to be. Not just the paid holy guys, all of us who name the name of Jesus. Now Paul, didn't just, he, they didn't just grow in this motherly affection. They also demonstrated a fatherly instruction. Look at verse 10. Paul says, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly, justly, and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you, uh, among you who believe. So Paul says, we, we lived in such a way that we were modeling what it means to follow Jesus. We set a good example. Now, interesting, in verse 11, when Paul says, uh, and you know how we exhorted, comforted, and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. We could talk about what those three words mean, but suffice it to know this. Paul is using terms that they would have been familiar with. So, so the Greeks had a lot of ideas about what good parenting looked like. And so he's quoting these main words. He's using descriptions of what they would expect, a Greek would expect a good father to be. How would a good father act? What would a good father see his responsibility as? And what's interesting, Paul's sort of affirming these things. Paul's not kind of coming on the scene saying, well, you know, Christians, we invented what parenting's about. He's not looking that way. He's going, no. He says, there's good things about the Greek culture, the way you guys look at fathering. This is the kind of fathers you need to be. But more so, he says, this is the kind of relationship we had with you, the fatherly commitment we had with you. Well, this is important to think about. Because what's going on here is Paul is using this 
parental model that they would understand to, to say, this is how we did ministry. This is how we were disciples who make disciples there in Thessalonica. This is how we did it. So he's very much using, listen, parenting principles as a way to show this is, this is what it means to be a Jesus follower. This is what it means to be a disciple maker. Now, here's, here's what I did this week. This week I was thinking about this issue, thinking about parenting, and I was doing some research about what, what do we consider now to be good parenting today? What's parental responsibilities today? And I'll be honest, I did this research thinking it was going to be some really weird stuff. There was going to be some weird ideas, but actually it wasn't weird at all. It was really good, solid stuff. Check this out. This is an adapted list from Psychological Today, Psychology Today, about uh, what good parenting is. This is surprisingly good. Listen to this. You might not be able to read a fine print, so I'll read it to you, but here's what it is. Number one, parents lead by example. In other words, by beliefs they follow and behaviors they model, they encourage imitation. They lead by example. Does that sound a good job, parents? Something that we should do? Can you see how this is what we should do as Jesus followers as well? How do we make disciples? We lead by example. We show what it looks like. Number two, parents teach by instruction. By knowledge and skills they impart, they instill learning. What did Paul do? Did Paul say, hey, I don't know much about this gospel. Let's just discuss what it might mean. No, Paul says, let me tell you what the, what the gospel is. I'm going to explain it to you. He was fatherly that way. Number three, parents inform by self-disclosure. That is, by personal history, they share lessons from their own lives. That's what we call in Christianese testimonies. Here's my story. Here's how God changed me. Here's what I was like before I was a Christian. Here's where I came to believe that Jesus was who I should trust. And here's what he's doing now. That's your testimony. Number four, parents convinced by persuasion. By explanation, they offer, uh, they give reasons that can convince. We, as all people, should be those who are people who want to say our faith is reasonable, who should be able to present the faith in Jesus as reasonable. You know why? Because it is. Because our faith in Jesus isn't based on ideas, it's based on a historical figure. It's based on a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. So we seek to persuade. Number five, parents inspire by motivation, by encouragement. They coach effort that is made. Shouldn't we be doing the same thing? Have a conversation with your neighbor. They're going, you know, I've been thinking about God's stuff, thinking about this or this. We don't go, oh, well, make sure, you, probably the wrong thoughts you've been having. That's not going to be helpful, is it? No, we go, that's really good. It's really good. What, what kinds of things are you thinking about? You encourage that thought process. It's coaching. Parents, number six, parents connect with empathy. That is, by expressing concern for feelings, they demonstrate how they care. Have you ever heard the old adage, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care? Ever heard that before? Do you care for your neighbors, your neighborhood? Maybe we should ask, talking about mission, what area stirs your heart the most? What people do you have an empathy for? Number seven, parents convince with commitment. That is, by unconditionally affirming unwavering faith and love, they gain credibility. 
Do you commit to relationships? Do we commit to relationships with one another? Now, it's interesting, isn't it? This is a secular uh, Psychology Today uh, article about parenting. Is there anything in there that's really unbiblical? Is there anything in there that's different than what Paul's saying here? Not really. Now, I'm not saying that to say, see, we can trust the Bible because it fits with psychology. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is no one's thinking of anything too new. You know what works? What works is doing what Jesus says. What transforms people's lives? When we follow Jesus and we help other people follow Jesus. And here's a, kind of some seven principles by which we live. Now, some of you guys as parents are going, man, I've really blown it as a parent. We all feel that way. Welcome to guilt. This is what it feels like to be a parent, okay? There's grace. There's grace. And God's doing so much more with your parenting than you can imagine. But the point is this. When Paul says, we came to you, we demonstrated fatherly instruction. He's talking about this, that we were willing to parent you toward Jesus. We didn't just say, here's information. Guys, do you realize this is why we're so huge into Adoption and foster care, while we take one Sunday a year to say, it's Adoption Sunday, let's celebrate it. I don't know, maybe on that Sunday some of you feel like, why are we doing this? Only a few families have adopted. But do you realize the adoption itself is a picture of what God does for us in inviting us into his family? And it sets a model for us of how we, parenting sets a model for us of how we are to be disciples that make disciples. Are you getting this? This is what Paul's laying out for us. He says in verse 12, here's why he's doing all this. Here's why Paul and and Silas and Timothy are doing this. Verse 12, he says that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul says this in summation. He says, my heart for you, our heart for you was to simply see you walk with God. This is why we did this. You know, this is what God calls us to. Mission, the mission of God, is about us being committed to each other to demonstrate the love that God has for his people and to invite people into that love. We go out and we invite them in. That's what mission is. The good news that Jesus died to save sinners. That Jesus rose from the dead to guarantee that we could be right with God. That Jesus ascended to heaven and promised he's coming back so that we can know we are going to be with him forever. We demonstrate that by committing to loving relationships. This is what God calls us to. Jesus was... um, in Matthew 4, Jesus was preaching to the crowds and there were these fishermen who would eventually become his disciples. They were there, probably had heard him preach before. And as they're kind of all standing around, Jesus stops after he's preaching and he looks at these four fishermen. It says he called out to the four fishermen and he says, come follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people. Jesus said, basically, he said, before you go, I want you to come to me. Before you go out there, I want you to gather in here. Because what he told them to do, he says, listen, 
He says, this is the commandment I give you. I want you to love one another as I've loved you. He goes, because when you love one another that way, when you are committed to these kind of relationships, what's going to happen is when you tell people about me, they're going to actually believe you because they see my love demonstrated in your love for each other. That's what it means to do mission. This is why it's so important that we don't just try to share information with neighbors, but that we try to gather together and are committed to each other so that when we invite people into this, they don't just hear about the love of God, they see the love of God. This is a heart for souls. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Father, we pray that you would do this work in our hearts. We pray, Lord, you would help us to see this is your heart for us. Lord, you came to seek and save that which is lost. Lord, you came to us while we were lost. And you sought us out. Lord, you you came to seek those who would worship you in spirit and in truth. And you're making us those kinds of worshipers. Lord, you have loved us with an everlasting love. And you call us that same kind of committed love toward one another. Lord, souls are in the balance. Father, we are aware that 97% of Norwich doesn't even darken the door of a church. God, people need to know who you are. Lord, give us a heart for souls. A heart that desires to please you a heart that's willing to work to bless others and benefit others, and a heart, Lord, that is committed to these kind of living relationships. Please, Father, we pray you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen.